following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Have you ever thought about what it really cost you to follow Jesus? I know sometimes it may be more difficult for us to think of something like that because in the United States where we live, there is not nearly as much of a physical threat to our belief system, our uh, Christianity that we profess. There's not as much of a threat to have someone walk through the back door of our worship center someone from the uh, police or military or government or someone like that that would enter in here and give us the option. Either you renounce your faith in Christ and just um, say, no, I don't believe and, and I, don't, I don't count myself a part of this and then you'll be released. Or you confirm that you do profess to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, your King, and then suffer the consequences, whatever they may be. There are places all over our world today, right now, where people don't enjoy this. They don't enjoy a freedom to come and gather and worship openly. I started thinking about the cost, maybe in more personal terms, maybe in terms of someone we could, we, maybe we could identify with them and maybe we could say, okay, this is not so much a, a physical threat, maybe there's other costs involved, maybe you lose out on something that you had before, maybe you um, lose income or maybe you lose a job or maybe you lose a standing in a, in a particular community. And I thought about several people because, honestly, there are, there are several somewhat well-known actors, actresses, celebrities, if you will, that have professed faith in Christ, and then because of that, and only that, they've been turned into outcasts. They've lost jobs, they've lost parts in movies or television shows, they've had to forgo fame that they had before they made their beliefs known. One in particular that I think we all can uh, recall or think of at least is Kirk Cameron. Now if you'll remember, he was a child actor. Okay, so he, he made his mark in the entertainment industry at an early age, he was cast, his big break, so to speak, he was cast as Mike Seaver in the show Growing Pains. And this was a, a very popular show. He became what they would call a teen heartthrob, you know, a young man. And he, you remember all these, these magazines that, that uh, middle school girls and early high school girls would always uh, want to read Tiger Beat and... 16 magazine and all these things and, and well he was he was the man he was the one that everybody looked at and thought he was oh he was so dreamy you know that was the the term but let me tell you about Kirk Cameron this was 1985 
when he was on this show on, on ABC TV, he would have a girlfriend who was actually on the show that would become his future wife, Chelsea Noble. But in the late 1980s, at the time of this show, Kirk Cameron, now understand, he's still a teenager. He's 16, 17 years old. He was making $50,000 a week on this show. Not too bad for a teenager. Not too bad for anybody. Well, at age 17, Kirk Cameron met Jesus. And things began to change. The more he was open about his beliefs, the more um, he was discriminated against in the entertainment world. He became more of an outcast. He began to not have the parts in TV shows or the opportunities to be in movies. He ended up leaving that entire industry, that Hollywood culture, behind. Now, he still has, has had opportunities. He was um, the lead actor in a movie that was produced by the Kendrick Brothers, Sherwood Films, who brought us um, films like uh, Fireproof, I'm trying to think, it's Courageous, Facing the Giants, these type of movies, very uh, unapologetically Christian themed. And he was, he was in the movie Fireproof. He was the, the fire captain uh, that had a spiritual crisis, so to speak. And uh, that particular film was created on a budget of $500,000. That's all it cost to film that entire movie. Anybody want to take a guess on the gross proceeds from that movie, Fireproof? This was in 2008. $500,000 budget, the film grossed over $33 million because people wanted to see that type of message. But what's interesting to me about the actor, because, you know, a lot of those actors are church members from the church in Georgia. Kirk Cameron decided my beliefs are more important than the potential to be prominent in the Hollywood culture. So he left that. You know what he's doing now? He partnered with a guy named Ray Comfort. They developed this evangelism teaching called The Way of the Master. And he's filmed different videos, and he's, they've done different debates and things. But the point is, he's dedicated his direction now more to, I want to just do what, what God wants me to do. And... If that means I lose out on these other things, if I lose out on notoriety or popularity and I don't get to maybe have the same paycheck that I had when I was in Hollywood, okay. But I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to follow the direction God gives me. In fact, he was given this dubious honor in Hollywood of one particular film he, he starred in. He was given the Worst Actor Award, and that movie got the Worst Movie Award a few years back. So if you can imagine, he was the teen heartthrob. He was receiving $50,000 a week, not even 20 years old, had a bright future ahead of him. But then God intervened 
in his life and changed his direction. You know what's interesting about that? Same thing happened to Paul. The person God used to write the letter we're studying, same thing happened to him. And today, we're going to hear straight from the Apostle Paul. We're going to get a story about who he was and who he became and how God showed him the value of what he wanted him to be, not what he was before. So let's look in, in our Bibles, Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses today and see, hopefully, very clearly the glory of knowing Christ. Follow along with me, if you would, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you because of the dogs you should beware. You should beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for its truth. Lord, I pray today, help it be clear to us. Help us to have understanding and help us to be obedient. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I have to tell you, this, this particular passage of Scripture is kind of difficult because it goes contrary to everything we're taught, everything we believe everything we think about in our culture today, because society tells us, especially in, in this wonderful country in which we live, we are brought up being told from many different directions, try harder, do better, you can do anything you want to do, you can be anything you want to be, if you just work at it, if you will just do your best, you can achieve anything. Anybody ever been told that as a child or growing up or in the workplace? If you just work harder, if you do your best, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. 
Now that sounds wonderful. Except when we take that principle and try to transfer it over to spiritual things. If you take that methodology and try to apply it into God's economy, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because let me tell you a secret. The theme of this passage, the reason why it's called the glory of knowing Christ, it's, it's not our glory. It's God's glory. It's not what we can do. It's what Christ has done. There's nothing we can do. And let me just say this up front before we work our way through these two paragraphs here in this, in this section. There's, it doesn't matter what you do or how well you do it. Your absolute best effort on your absolute best day falls completely short of God's standard. Is that encouraging enough for you? There's nothing you can do you don't have the ability. No one on this earth has the power and ability to earn the, the righteousness of God, the good graces of God. None of us can achieve being right in God's eyes. You know how I know that? I know that because Jesus Christ came to this earth he emptied himself of his glory. He existed in the form of God, yet did not uh, see his standing as God something to be grasped or, ex or exerted. So he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He, he was found in appearance as a man. And then he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him and given Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. That's just a fact. It's just a matter of when. The Bible taught us that just one chapter ago. Because of the fact that Jesus came to this earth and died a substitutionary death for us. Because that happened, that gives me confidence to say 100% I'm sure I can't get to heaven any other way. Here's how I know that. If we could get to heaven any other way, Jesus wouldn't have done what he did. That's just the logical fact. If there was another way to get to heaven besides Jesus doing what he did, then he wouldn't have done it. If we could somehow be good enough or do enough good, both in quality and quantity, if we could be good enough in our own strength and ability, Jesus Christ would never have come to this earth and died. But he did. He did. So I know... There's no other way. And who would know that better than Paul? Let's think back for a minute. He looks in this particular passage, he, he looks in at himself. And he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, that seems kind of redundant because of course you're going to rejoice in the Lord because everything he's already said up to this point in this letter. But he says, I'm writing the same thing again, but it's no trouble. It's actually good for you. 
He says, it's good for you if I write this again. It's a safeguard, so to speak. In other words, here's what, here's what I get from this. I can't tell you enough, or I can't tell you too many times to rejoice in the Lord. I can't tell you often enough your joy comes from Jesus. You're not going to find true joy and fulfillment in anything on this earth. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in my heart a void that nothing on this earth can fill, nothing in this world can fill, that tells me I was made for another world. I was made to be in heaven with Jesus. Because nothing on this earth can fulfill me like Jesus. Nothing. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say it again because it's going to be a safeguard for you, Paul says. It's going to help you to remember this over and over and over. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in a job. Don't rejoice in an income. Don't rejoice in possessions. Or don't rejoice even in a wonderful relationship on earth. Rejoice in the Lord. Are all those things good and great and blessings? Sure, of course they are. God gives us way more than we deserve. Good things. But where does our lasting, eternal joy come from? Jesus. It comes from Jesus. So Paul starts off, rejoice in the Lord. But then there's two sections here. Beware. Now if you'll think about in your mind, there's some other letters that Paul was inspired to write in the New Testament, particularly one to Galatians. The, the church in, in, in Galatia. And here's why he wrote that letter. We're not going to get off on that tangent too much, but I just want to say it quickly. The whole reason he wrote that letter, the book of Galatians, was to combat against false teaching. A particular group called the Judaizers who were saying to the church, hey, you found Jesus, that's awesome. Well, you still got to do this list of things or else you're not really saved. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. When it comes to salvation... It's Jesus, period. Okay? So he's kind of revisiting what he would write to the Galatians. He, in this letter here to the Philippians, he said, Beware of the dogs. Those, that was a word for uh, Gentiles, those who are without God. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, the false circumcision. And then he says in verse 3, For we're the true circumcision. Interesting fact here. The word true, not in the Greek New Testament. It was added to kind of give us a good contrast between verse 2 and verse 3, the false and the true. But here's what he really said. We are the circumcision, the circumcision. That means there's only one. There's only one. There's, there's no duplicates. So anything else that presents itself as the people of God, because what was circumcision in the Old Testament? It was the sign of the covenant, right? Well, in Acts 15 and in Romans chapter 2, you see this principle that after Christ came, guess what? The new covenant, he even said it at the, at the Last Supper, this blood is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What he was saying is, you don't have to try to follow all this law in order to justify yourself in my sight anymore because I'm coming to sacrifice for you forever, once for all. So this idea here of circumcision, people trying to say, hey, no, Jesus isn't enough. You still have to do these things. Well, that's just not what the gospel is, is it? That's not what the Bible says. It's not Jesus plus you've got to do these things. It's just Jesus. So people who believe they're God's people because of their confidence in what they can do. These are dogs, evil workers. The word mutilation is false circumcision. 
There's only one real circumcision. There's no value in an outward sign if there's no inward transformation. Did you hear me? It doesn't matter how good you are on the outside if nothing has happened in your heart. You can scream at the top of your lungs, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Guess what? Show me. Or or better still, don't show me. Show God. I'm not the judge, I'm a witness. Show God. You think you can get through to the throne of God by screaming louder how good you are, how Christ-like you are, just by saying it? I can't. I've tried. (laughs) I can't do it. We have to live like Christ. We have to follow Christ in our actions. Words mean nothing. Why do you think there's that phrase that's popular everywhere? Actions speak louder than words. Not just a quaint little saying. It's actually true. So when Paul says, hey, the true circumcision or the circumcision, we worship in the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So verse 3 is a pivot point. So when you see that in your Bible, Paul says, we glory in Christ. We don't put confidence in ourselves. Well, guess what? He's about to list his pedigree. He's about to say, hey, you think you have reason to brag about what you've done? Let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you who I am. And he looks all the way back in his Bible. If you think in our New Testament, Acts chapter 9 is the story of the conversion of Saul on the Damascus Road. Up to that point, Saul was the BMOC. You know what I'm talking about? He was the big man on campus. He was the top of his class Pharisee. He was the best around in his peer group. All the people who were studying to be a religious leader in the Jewish culture, they looked at Saul and said, wow, man, if I can just be like that. He was the number one achiever, the top achiever in that group. And he's going to list. Look at the rest of this first paragraph here, beginning in verse 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anybody else has a mind to brag, he says, I've got more reason to brag. And then he starts listing things that he's done. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. So that means he has the full covenantal privileges according to Jewish law because he followed it. His parents followed it perfectly. Of the nation of Israel means he had pure Israelite descent. Not only that, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, out of the twelve tribes that came from Jacob, this was the first. Uh, this was the tribe that gave the first king to Israel. This was also the tribe that remained loyal over all the others to David and all his successors. So then he says, I'm a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he was the child of godly, zealously religious parents. So not only he as he grew up, but his parents, his family line, everything was just lining up perfectly for him to be a success. Then he says, according to the law, I was a Pharisee, I'm a Pharisee, or I was a Pharisee. You know what that means? Top religious leader class. That means he's not only the, the one who... Um, writes the law, he enforces the law, he makes sure everybody else is doing right according to the law. Then he says, not just a Pharisee, 
But he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, let me just pause there for a second, because that seems bad, right? Well, guess what? In Jewish circles, that's not bad. Because, let me tell you what Paul's saying here. He's saying, as a Pharisee, as a zealous Pharisee, I'm going to oppose every challenge to the Jewish religious system. Well, guess what was the major challenge to the Jewish religious system? Christianity. The New Testament church. The birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. That was a huge challenge to the Jewish way in religion. And so Paul, Saul, was going to oppose that with everything he had. And that's what he did. That's what he was doing in Acts 9 when he got interrupted by Jesus. And then finally he says, according to the righteousness in the law, found blameless. In other words, according to his self-imposed legalism, he was blameless. That's man's standard. Don't confuse that with what God says. Man's standard. So Paul lays out his entire history and he says, guess what? You think you can brag about what you've done? Look at my resume. From the time I was born to the time I got assaulted on the Damascus Road by the Lord, Jesus himself, I was number one in the Jewish religion. Number one. Nobody can brag more than me. Now, look at the first word in verse 7. But. So everything he just said that was so strong, such an argument, he says now, but. Let me tell you what the truth is about all that stuff that I've done. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So in verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 7, in verse 7, he's using a particular, this is really neat right here. He's showing this contrast. Whatever the world says is gain, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. But in verse 7, he uses a perfect tense. Let me tell you what that, why that's significant. A perfect tense means this is an action that's been completed in the past, but the result of it just keeps going on and on and on and on. So in the past, he counted all those things as loss, but the result of that decision has affected the rest of his life. So in verse 7 he says, whatever things, whatever things were gain, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then look at verse 8. More than that, more than that, I count. Present tense, continual action. So he did it in the past. He's doing it in the present. He's going to keep on doing it in perpetuity. I count all things. See, he went to, went to general and then he went to expansive. He said, whatever things, whatever things were gained. Now he says, all things. I count all things to be lost. Compared to what, Paul? Verse 8. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So just stop there for a second. You see what Paul just said? There's absolutely nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus. Nothing. There's nothing more important, nothing more beneficial, nothing more valuable on this whole planet. There's nothing greater 
than knowing Jesus. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. The word there, not to get too graphic, it's like a, a, a dung pile. That's the literal translation of what he's saying. That's what I think of everything else compared to knowing Jesus. I count all that as trash, garbage, compared to knowing Jesus, so that I may gain Christ. One commentator said it this way, We learn that Christ does not become ours by effort, but by rejection of effort. No one had ever striven for righteousness as hard as Paul did, and yet he does not see Christ as the prize standing just above the top rung of the ladder of self-achievement. He can't have Christ until he has totaled up all his works of righteousness and admitted the answer is loss. Nothing he has done in his life, and he's done a lot, nothing compares Christ. Nothing. Should we do a little self-reflection right now? Consider your own life. Consider my life. I think about anything I've ever achieved, anything I've ever done, anything I've ever felt good about in my life, anything that I've accomplished that I can look back and say, wow, man, that was a lot of work. uh, I'm, I'm proud of myself. Anything. Doesn't matter what's on the list. Anything in our lives pales in comparison to knowing Jesus. And and this is not something that we can earn. Remember? It's not effort. It's a rejection of effort. It's as if to say, the best thing in all the universe that I can have, I can't work for. I can't do more or do better or work harder to get it. It's a gift. It's a free gift. In verse 8, Paul has used that term, present tense, I count all things to be lost compared to the value of Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things because of Christ, but I count them all to be garbage. What's the purpose statement, Paul? What do you hope to gain if you count everything in your life compared to Jesus As a loss, why? Look at the end of verse 8. There's a great little phrase there. He uses it twice in this passage. So that. Purpose. What's the purpose? So that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And what does that look like, Paul? If I gain Christ and I'm found in Christ, union with Christ, what does that look like? That means I don't have a righteousness of my own. Because if I think I'm righteous in myself, then my standard is the law. That means what can I do? How good can I be? What makes me good? Oh, well, I'll just compare myself with other people who don't keep the law as well as I do. In other words, I'm going to go back and take that proverbial trip to Walmart. I'm going to walk around, see if I can find some people more jacked up than I am so I can make myself feel better. That's pointless. Pointless. And you can find some people that are doing worse than you. Did you know that is a truth that will always be a truth? In life, there's always going to be people doing better than you. There's always going to be people doing worse than you. But guess what? Our value is not to compare ourselves to other people. 
our values to compare ourselves to Jesus. And when we compare ourselves to Jesus, everybody's in the same group. Because there's not good people and bad people. There's bad people and Jesus. Two groups. This group has everybody that's ever lived in it. This group has one person in it. That's the truth. Whether we want to acknowledge that or not, that's the truth. None of us is good. So gaining Christ, being found in Christ, not having righteousness of my own from the law, but having righteousness through faith in Christ. It's from God by faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, there's a purpose, we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So how is it we get righteous again? By something God did. (laughs) You see that? It's something God did. It's not something I did. It's not something we can do. God made Jesus to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. The only way we get God's righteousness is because Jesus died. Jesus died for us. So that's where we get our righteousness. So that's why Paul says, so that I may know Christ. Look at verse 10. So I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. You know what that means? That means anytime we suffer, guess who's right there with us? Jesus. What does it mean to know the power of His resurrection? It means that because Jesus rose, we will rise. If you are in Christ, because Jesus rose, you will rise. That means there is no eternal death. There's eternal life. It's one of the promises of salvation that Jesus bought for us on the cross. Forgiveness and eternal life. Paul says, So I may know Him the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. What does His death look like? Remember that passage I, I quoted a moment ago? Philippians 2, 5-11, 6-11. What did Jesus look like when He was on earth? He emptied Himself, took the form of a servant. He humbled Himself, became obedient to death. What kind of death? The worst death possible on a cross for us. And it's for that reason God highly exalted him. So if we want to become conformed to his death, then what do we need to be doing? Pretty simple. Humble servant. Humble servant. That's who Jesus was. That's his example. That's why in verse 5 Paul said, Have this attitude in yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. And then he explained it. He emptied himself took the form of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient to death. That's what we should do. Humble service. Conform to his death. Again, so that, what? I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Another commentator wrote it this way. We know neither how many days we have left on earth, nor what those days will contain. But we do know that be they many or few, smooth or rough, at the end of those days, there is the glory, the resurrection from the dead. Paul, therefore, encourages himself and us along the path of Christ-likeness by sharing his determination, as though he said, so by whatever route God shall ordain by his providence, and what it will be, 
I don't know. But whatever route it may be, empowered by the risen Savior Jesus Christ and accompanied by Christ Himself, I will follow Him. I will follow Him, bearing my cross, descending with Him into death, and then, for all eternity, still with Him, I will enjoy the glory of the resurrection. See, that's the whole point behind the glory of knowing Christ. What is the glory of knowing Christ? Resurrection. Being with Christ forever. Eternal life in Him. You know, it's, um, there's, there's, just, there's so much else that we could say about this text, about expanding each of these powerful statements that Paul has made. And maybe it's difficult, uh, it's a difficult principle for us to get a hold of. You know, especially in our current culture that we can only reach our ultimate goal by rejecting our own self-effort. You know, we can't try, we can't earn it. It's not an easy pill to swallow. That we, we can't earn something no matter how hard we try. But this is at the center of the gospel message. The gospel message, the good news about Jesus, that, that principle is at the middle of it all. Here it is. Jesus saves, period. It's not Jesus saves as long as we do these certain things. It's not Jesus saves if we are good people. It's not Jesus saves, but only based on perfect church attendance. This, this, listen, listen to me. This is the truth of the gospel. There's none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who are you calling on to save you? Who do you trust to deliver you? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Paul said, Jesus said, Peter said, um, every writer in Scripture said, Jesus saves. Call on Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.